Well, good morning, everybody. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus, please. Chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Father in heaven, as we come before your word, we come, Lord, with hearts that are listening, hearts that are reverent, and, Lord, hearts full of faith. We believe, Jesus, that you are here in our midst and that you want to speak to your people. So now, as we open your word, we ask that you speak to us. Do it, Lord, as you've so faithfully done before. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you turn to Exodus chapter 20, I realize that it's been, well, it's been like four weeks since we've been in the book of Exodus. I mean, first we had the Sunday before Easter, and you're going to talk about uh, Christmas. That would be a long time before, wouldn't it? Ah, All right, let me just regroup here just for a minute. First you had the Sunday before Christmas. And we spoke on a Christmas theme, and then I took a Sunday off, and then last week was Mission Sunday. So it's actually four Sundays ago since we were last in the book of Exodus. But I hope you remember at least a little bit of our general context, where we were in the book of Exodus. The children of Israel had come out of Egypt and all the slavery and all the bondage in Egypt that was connected to that. They had come through the Red Sea in a miraculous crossing. They ate manna that was provided for them every morning. They were, had a, a miraculous provision of water for them in the wilderness. And God led them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud through the day, just exactly where he wanted them to go. And he wanted them to go to Mount Sinai because they were going to stay at Mount Sinai for an entire year. And in that year at Mount Sinai, God was going to reveal himself to the nation. And as we saw in the beginning of Exodus chapter 20, God revealed himself to the nation when they were gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. And God, in some way, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but I know how to describe the effects because the Bible tells us what the effects of God's presence on Mount Sinai was. Those effects were marked by uh, thunder and, and lightning and an earthquake, and smoke. And the thing that blows my mind almost most of all, there was a trumpet blast that was blown by no human trumpeter, but some angelic or heavenly trumpeter blowing a trumpet blast from heaven. And then finally, at the end of all of that, God spoke to them the Ten Commandments from heaven. We looked at that over two weeks. We saw the first four commandments that are directed sort of between us and God. That's their focus. And then we saw the next six commandments that are more horizontal, if you want to say, in their character. They deal more with how we should relate to one another. But when all of that was done, when all the exhaustion and, and, uh, and, and, and majesty and, and, and sovereign display of God's presence was finished, when God's voice fell silent at the end of it, what do you think the children of Israel, what do you think the response would be? More, more, God, tell us more. No, look at what it was. Verse 18. Now, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. In other words, there wasn't something magnetic about this awesome presence of God on Mount Sinai. 
No, almost quite to the contrary. It was a sense of exclusion. They understood that there was something so mighty, so majestic, so powerful about the presence of God as it was displayed on Sinai. And there was something unholy, impure in themselves that they felt that they must get away or at least put some distance between themselves and God. You see, the awe of the phenomenon did nothing to draw the people closer to God. Look at what it says there in verse 18. It says, they trembled and stood afar off. No, we don't want to get any closer. If anything, we want to take a couple steps back. It made them less hesitant, excuse me, less ready, more hesitant to rush into the presence of God. Now, you're going to see this reflected in verse 19. Take a look at it here. It says, then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Isn't that strange? Don't we imagine in our mind that if we had an up-close and personal connection with God, that we would say, yes, yes, more, 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 give me all you got. All I can say is from what we see in the Scriptures, it doesn't always work like that. Now, sometimes it does. We have scenes in the life of Jesus where it seemed like people just wanted to be with Jesus and couldn't get enough of him. But we have other scenes when Jesus was displaying his majesty, was displaying something of his glory. For example, when he had just done something beautiful and powerful and supernatural, something that really displayed his glory, Peter's reaction was this, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Do you get what I'm talking about? That there is an aspect in which God displays himself. Not that he's trying to push us away. Not that God is running away from us. Look, if he wanted to run away from us, he could do it very easily. But rather, there's nothing in God saying, get away from me. No, he's just being who he is. And our reaction to is to say, I don't know if I can stand in the presence of such a holy, such a just God. That's why they said in verse 19, let not God speak with us. You see, biblically speaking, an up-close encounter with God can just as often be troubling as it might be comforting. Israel came and they couldn't see and they couldn't feel and they couldn't hear this much from God and know their own sinfulness and reconcile the two. They were acutely aware of the fact he's holy, he's glorious, he's majestic, and I'm not. That was a little too much for them to handle, and they felt like they needed a little bit of separation. That's why they said to Moses, verse 19, you speak with us and we will hear. Now, there's two things that I think are fascinating about that. Number one, it's fascinating to consider how they thought, first of all, that they still wanted to hear from God, just not so directly. Yeah, we still want to hear. Moses, you go talk with God, tell us what he says, and then that'll be great. But the second thing I notice here is that they seem far overconfident. We'll hear, we'll listen, we'll obey. I want to spoil the rest of the book of Exodus for us. We're going to be going through it on Sunday morning. How'd they do with that? 
How'd they do with it? Yes, Lord, you just, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do it. I don't think it worked out quite that easily, quite that neatly. But they said here, verse 19, did you notice it again? It says, let not God speak with us lest we die. You see, in drawing back from this direct dealing with God, Israel wanted Moses to be their mediator. Moses, you stand between us. We sense that there's such a gap between who God is and who we are that we need somebody in the middle to bridge the gap. That They feared death if they didn't have a mediator. I'll tell you this, friends. Man's desire for a mediator, somebody to stand between us and God, it's satisfied in Jesus Christ. Oh, listen, Moses was something of a mediator for ancient Israel. No doubt about it. He stood in the middle between God and Israel. But that was Moses, and he was an imperfect mediator. I've got good news for you. God has provided us a perfect mediator in Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us this at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our mediator. He's our stand between. Now, please understand. You don't need another mediator. Sometimes people grow up, and it's very natural for young people. I, I think of maybe somebody, a young person, 11, 12, 13 years old. And there is a sense when a child's that young, the parent is the natural sort of mediator between them and God, sort of leading them to God, being the one who guides them towards God. There comes a place where they realize, no, I've got to deal with God directly. I need a mediator, Jesus himself, not somebody to stand between. Other times in history, people have tried to make other things, saints or maybe Mary as their mediator. No, no, no. Don't look to the saints. Don't look to Mary. Look to Jesus as your mediator. And worse yet, sometimes, some people have looked to the preacher to be a mediator. They thought, well, look, I, I won't seek God for myself. I'll let the pastor seek God and tell me what he comes up with. It. No, Jesus Christ is the mediator. And each one of us has to have our own direct dealing with him because there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, verse 20, Moses is going to respond to this request from the people, this backing off of the people. The people were so impressed, but sort of in a fearful way of what God did there on Mount Sinai. The people wanted to take a step back And now Moses is going to respond to the people and speak to them in verse 20. Look at this together with me. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. A couple things here that I find are so, so fascinating. First of all, he says in verse 20, do not fear, for God has come to test you. You know, I wouldn't blame somebody in Israel for saying something like this. Moses, do not fear. If God didn't want us to fear, why did he scare the pants off us with all that stuff at Mount Sinai? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? No, but there's a sense in which they were supposed to fear, and there was a sense in which they were not supposed to fear. And it's really found that almost contradictory, but actually complementary idea found right there in verse 20. Notice there in verse 20, it both says, do not fear, and then it also says, that his fear may be before you. Does God want you to be afraid? Yes and no. Let's deal with the no first. There's lives here, and your life is bound by fear. 
You worry about it all the time. You're troubled by it by day. You're worried about it by night. Your life is consumed with fears, things that might happen to you, things that might happen to people you love, things that might happen to the things that you have, and you worry all the time. And God wants to bring his sweet release to you and say, don't be afraid, don't fear. Would you please just get, would you cast your cares upon me because I care for you? There's that sense in which God says, no, put away fear. But there's another sense in which God wants us to fear. This sense in having an appropriate reverence and respect of who he is. I don't know if you had that person in your life. I don't know if it was your parents. I mean, I suppose ideally so it's your parents. But some of us had good parents and some of us didn't. I don't know if it was your parents. Maybe it was a respected teacher or youth leader or somebody like that. But somebody that you so loved, you so honored, you so respected, that in a very appropriate way you wanted to please them. That's what God wants from us in this beautiful dimension between us and our relationship with him. Verse 20, as it says, that his fear may be before you. Again, it's distinguishing between those two kinds of fear. Fear not, and yet fear. Now, notice this. It says that you may, at the end of verse 20, so that you may not sin. Is fear an adequate motivator to keep people from sinning? Well, kind of. Think of it. In Israel's case, did fear keep them from sinning? I'm thinking about 40 days from now, they're going to be dancing around a gold calf and saying, this is the God that kept us from Egypt, that brought us from Egypt. Isn't that amazing? These same people who were shaking in their sandals in front of Mount Sinai, a month and a half later seem to have forgotten it all, and they're dancing around a golden calf. It's crazy, isn't it? In that sense, fear is not an entirely effective um, uh, barrier against sin. You know what a greater one is? Love. Love will keep you from sin more effectively than fear will. Look, let me illustrate this to you from a passage in 1 John 4, verse 18. It says this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loves us. Friends, it's not bad for you to obey God out of fear. That's not bad. To be honest, I'd rather that you obeyed God out of fear than you disobeyed him. That's not bad. But I'll give you an even better motivator to obey God. Love and gratitude for all that he's given you, all that he's done for you, all that he's poured into your life. That is a far better motivator. Now, verse 21. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Isn't that an awesome verse, verse 21? You see, Israel dreaded the powerful presence of God. But Moses said, no, there's something in there. There's something powerful. There's something that speaks of the glory of God. And I'm just sort of whetting your appetite because 
in several weeks, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 30. And at Exodus chapter 33, Moses is going to be so bold that he's going to go and pursue God in a dimension that nobody else in Israel had. And he's going to want to see something of God's presence and something of God's glory that he hadn't seen before. Moses was drawn by this magnetic presence of God. And I love this verse because it speaks to us about this heart that says, okay, the rest of the people may be backing off, but Moses says, I want to go further with you, Lord. I pray that God would fill this congregation with people with the same heart that Moses had right here. This heart that says, you know, it doesn't matter to me how many other people just shy away from wanting to really go for it with the Lord, really want to shy away from giving God all of their heart, all of their commitment. They say, no, God, I'm going to pursue you to the greatest depths that I can. I want to be drawn in by your presence. I want to say, it says there in verse 20, where Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And please remember, Moses wasn't some kind of flawless saint. If I could remind you, Moses had the blood of murder on his hand. Had he not murdered an Egyptian several decades before, yet nevertheless, God says, if your sin is satisfied by the work that's done at my altar, come, Moses, you can come in. I think God is drawing. I think God wants people who will say, yes, Lord, I want to pursue you. I want to go after you. I want to draw near. Even if it seems like thick darkness to other people, it's a cloud of glory as far as I'm concerned. And that was the heart of Moses. Now, At the end of verse 21, we have a transition. We sort of end the experiential account of when God came down and spoke to Israel with a powerful display of his presence there on Mount Sinai. We move from that at the end of verse 21. And we move into a section where God gives them many instructions and laws. And we'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. What I think is fascinating about this is right at the very beginning when God is going to spell out instructions and laws that he wants Israel to keep. Do you know where he began? He began with an altar. Does anybody know what an altar is all about? Well, look, maybe we should just read it. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you've seen that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of gold or gods of, excuse me, gods of silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. Now, first of all, verse 22 makes it very clear that God did speak to Israel audibly from heaven. Right. It's right there in there. Verse 22. You have seen that I talked with you from heaven. But secondly, notice it in verse 23. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver or gods of gold. Because God did not reveal himself in any image on Mount Sinai, Israel was forbidden from making an image as all the other pagan nations did as a normal practice. They were forbidden from making an image of God to worship. They were to worship him in spirit and in truth. God said, you didn't see a great big bird descending down on Mount Sinai. I said, don't make a bird statue. You didn't see a great big angel descending on Mount Sinai. Don't make an angel statue. You didn't see a glorious man, so don't make a man statue. Don't worship any of those things, but worship me in spirit and in truth. But then very much connected with the idea of true worship is what we find beginning now at verse 24. Look at it with me where it says, 
an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Now, as God starts laying out instructions for the practical daily life of Israel, where did he begin in this? Well, he began, first of all, almost in a preface, almost in a preamble. God says, let me tell you about an altar. Why did God begin with an altar? Because you need it and I need it. Anytime we start talking about God's law, anytime we start talking about God's standards, we are vitally aware of the fact that we don't keep them, that we've broken them. Oh, oh, I hope we take it seriously and say, yes, Lord, you helping me. I want to keep your commandments better. You helping me, you filling my life. I want to do the very best I can to live the way that you want me to. But God, I recognize that I have not kept your law. And undoubtedly in the future, to some extent or another, I will not keep your law. I need to be forgiven, even though I'm a lawbreaker. You know, I I am very grateful for this congregation. When we were in Exodus chapter 20 a few weeks ago, when we went through the Ten Commandments, four commandments on one Sunday, six commandments on the following Sunday, may I say, those were a couple heavy Sundays at this pulpit. There there was a thickness in the air. There was a sense of, of heaviness, and I mean in a good way. There was a sense... That, Lord, we're going to open up our hearts before you and we're going to let you speak to our lives. And where it's good, it's good. And where it's bad, we need to hear it, Lord. So come and bring it. And I'm very grateful. I thank the Lord that this is a congregation that wants to hear the word, that doesn't want it sugarcoated. That's a, just bring it, Pastor. Just bring what's here in the book. But when we do that, we come back to the idea again and again We need this mediator. We need this sacrifice. It's almost like this. The the, the people say, Pastor, slaughter me with the word. Go ahead and do it. But please, Pastor, don't leave me there. Point me to the hope that I have. You want to know what the hope is? The hope is found at the altar. There you are slaughtered by the Ten Commandments. There you are fearful for Mount Zion, the earthquake, the smoke, the fire, all of it just sort of freaked you out. Where's your refuge, you lawbreaker, you shaking in your boots person from Mount Sinai? I'll tell you where the refuge is. It's for you. It's for me. It's for every one of us. Our refuge is at the altar. The altar is the place of sacrifice. Now, what does altar mean? Well, our English word comes from the Latin, the Latin altus, which just means high, because typically altars were on raised platforms to give prominence to the business that was done there. But that's the Latin word. That's our English word. You know, the ancient Hebrew word that's translated for altar, I'm going to be a little bit free in my translation, sort of to give you the concept behind it. But basically in the Hebrew, the idea behind an altar is this, killing place. 
It's a place of death. Sometimes sort of metaphorically in the church here, we talk about uh, the front being an altar. You talk about having an altar call in the church, come forward to the altar, a place of sacrifice, a place of dedication. And that's fine as it goes. I think we should be a people of sacrifice and dedication unto the Lord. But I'll tell you this. In the Old Testament, when Moses spoke this, when the people of Israel heard this, they knew what an altar was all about. They knew that it was at the altar that the jugular vein of an innocent animal would be cut. Its warm blood would pulsate out until the heart stopped. The blood would be gathered and applied in a sacrificial way to the altar. And depending on the type of sacrifice, the animal would be cut up, would be distributed again, depending on the type of sacrifice it was. Sometimes it would be entirely burnt before the Lord. Sometimes only portions of it would be burnt before the Lord. But it was a place of blood and, if I could say, gore and sacrifice because it was an altar. It was a killing place. You may say, and rightfully so, I am so happy that we don't have that kind of religion today. Wouldn't that be the strangest thing? Instead of after the message here, we sort of have a second set of worship. Instead of that, you know, why is he bringing a goat on stage? It would be something like that. It would be strange, bizarre. We wouldn't know what to think of it. We wouldn't know what to deal with it. But friends, here's the good news. It's not like we've given up on an altar. Oh, no. We have an altar and our altar stands and it reminds us all the time of the greatest killing place of all of the greatest altar where the greatest sacrifice was ever offered. I'm talking about how every altar of the Old Testament found its perfect fulfillment at the cross where Jesus Christ was offered, not just at the perfect altar. Oh, look, just like God instructed them, don't make the altar fancy. I don't want it to speak of the glory of any man's work. I want the altar to be rough and hewn. Is there anything more rough and hewn than a cross? It wasn't gold. It wasn't silver. It wasn't made with fine craftsmanship from a wood carver. It was two rough beams put together. And on those two rough beams, the Son of God hung, and He was He was sacrificed for our sins. It wasn't just a glorious altar. It was a glorious sacrifice upon that altar. Now, to prepare the people for this eventual fulfillment, God spoke to Israel. And he says, for example, in verse 25 here in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not build it of hewn stone. If you're going to make it of stone, don't carve it up nice. I don't want anything at that altar that's going to draw attention to man. I've been in churches, probably you have too. I've been in churches, especially in Europe, where the whole thing is like an art museum. Well, matter of fact, that's what you do. You walk around the church like an art museum. Well, here's this beautiful, and some of the paintings and sculptures are gorgeous. We just love to walk through and look at it. And there's the stained glass. And you've got to say, it's very impressive, stirring, soul-stirring, artistic achievement. But I couldn't imagine sitting down and listening to an actual sermon in there. First of all, because usually the acoustics in those places are terrible. But let me add, terrible for preaching, wonderful for singing, wonderful for singing. Never forget, one time we, we took a group of our interns from the Bible College in Germany, and we went to London for sort of like a field trip. And there we went into Westminster Abbey. 
and we wanted to go see Westminster Abbey until we found out that it cost like 30 bucks to take a tour of Westminster Abbey. We said, man, forget it. These are a bunch of poor interns. Wait, we're not going to do that. So then we found out that in just about a half hour, they were having a service there, and you could get into the service for free and have a look around Westminster Abbey. Well, that appealed to us just fine, of course. And so what did we do? We walked in there to Westminster Abbey, and there was an Anglican service going on. And let me tell you, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And and when they got the choir up there to sing, there were tears in the eyes of many of our group because it was so beautiful, and it sounded tremendous. And then... I don't know, the vicar, the priest, whatever you would call him in that particular Anglican category, he got up to speak, and you could hardly understand a word he said. And it wasn't because he had a funny English accent. You could hardly understand a word he said because the acoustics of that building were perfectly engineered for beautiful song, but not for hearing the word of God clearly. And so, listen, you go inside these churches, and you see them, and they're beautiful, but you sit down and try to listen to a message, and all you see is man everywhere. You're looking at the pastor, and you look right up over his shoulder. It says, this memorial plaque placed by this and this. You look over his other shoulder, and it says, this person buried here in the year 1672. And then you look down at your feet, and there's somebody buried right under your feet. And then over on the other side, you look, and there's, and there's this beautiful sculpture, and you could just sit and look at that sculpture for a long time and forget all about the message, thank you very much. But you see what God says? He said, listen, there's a place for art. There's a place for man's artistic achievements and accomplishments. And God bless those in our midst who pursue such things. But when my people gather for worship, I want the focus to be upon me, not upon the skill of the engraver, but I want the focus to be upon me. He even said this so much so that if you notice there in verse 26, he said, nor shall you go up by steps. Why? So that the nakedness of the man wouldn't be exposed. Well, what kind of business is going on here? Exposed nakedness. No, he's even talking about the subtle character of the priest's leg, his bare leg being exposed as he went up steep steps to the altar. He said, I don't want anything to draw any attention to man I want the focus to be upon me, God says. Why? And I'll end with this. Look at verse 24. The phrase is found in verse 24. I will come to you and I will bless you. When God's name is honored at an altar, where he is glorified and his altar is properly presented and glorified in the midst of his people, God makes a promise. And what's that promise? Look at it right there at verse 24. I will come to you and I will bless you. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you need that today? Don't you need the presence of God, not in the fear and torment of Mount Sinai, but in the love and forgiveness that he provides at his altar. You need him to come to you, but you know what else you need? You need him to bless you. I won't ask for a show of hands, but wouldn't it be nice to see how many people consciously know they need the blessing of God? I think just about everybody of us here, right? You need his presence and you need his blessing. Do you realize he said that he would bring it at the altar? And this makes it so wonderful that today, together as a congregation, we're going to come to the Lord's table. 
We're going to receive the bread. We're going to receive the cup that speaks to us of God's altar. What we're going to do in a very demonstrable way is together as a congregation, we're coming to his altar. And I want you to believe it. I want you to believe it with all your heart. Lord, you will come to me at your altar. Lord, you will bless me at your altar. He's not doing this from a distance, folks. He's coming up very close to us as we come to meet him at his altar. Are you ready for that? Father, this is our prayer. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray it with, um, with hopefully that, that rightful, reverent sense of respect and honor towards you. But Lord, we also pray it as people who have received at least something of your love. And together now, Lord, not just as a collection of individuals, but Lord, as a true congregation, we come to your altar. We come believing that you will meet with us and we're bold enough to believe that you will bless us. Not because we deserve it, but because you promised it. So, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts right here, right now, to meet with you, to receive your blessing. At your altar. Do it, Lord, for the sake of Jesus, your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.